Hello and welcome to episode 6 of The Emmy Show. My name's Gary Burgess and together with the Emmy Association, I hope this series of podcasts will shine a light on Emmy, on the people with it, as well as those working to raise awareness and understanding of it. Thanks again for your feedback on the last episode. It was so lovely to hear from those of you who didn't know about Michelle and Nigel's brilliant Music for Emmy project, as well as hearing from some of those whose music and poetry we featured on the podcast. As ever, please keep the feedback coming. You'll find me on Twitter at Gary Burgess CI. And if you use the hashtag The ME Show, it makes it so much easier for me to keep a track on your messages. I promise I do read every single one of them, even if I don't always manage to reply to them all, but I really do try my best. This week, we look at life with severe Emmy. I meet Trish Davis, who's had Emmy for 28 years, for the first decade or so with what might be called mild Emmy, before things took a turn for the worse, leaving Trish housebound and mostly bedbound. Speaking to Trish was a real privilege, as I know it took an awful lot of her valuable energy to speak so honestly to me about her own experiences, but also that of her daughter Hannah who also has severe ME and it's heartbreaking to see this happening to somebody who should be I'm going to start crying now (laughs) somebody who should be living a, a healthy fulfilled life just just never had a chance Trish Welcome to the Emmy show. I I asked this question and I and I mean it rather than just as a platitude. How are you today? Better than I was yesterday, but in my usual state of not well. I had a he- bad headache for the last 3 days, so I woke up this morning thinking am I going to be able to do this call and I lay there for about an hour just sipping water slowly, feeling horrible. And gradually the headache cleared a bit, so I thought, yes, I can cope with it. But basically I wake up in the morning aching all over, feeling like I've got the flu, Um, not able to sit up straight away because I know I'll go lightheaded and probably pass out. Um, So I lie there for quite a while waiting for my eyes to focus and get a bit of liquid into me. And then I, I sit up slowly and I stagger to the bathroom and go and get a drink and stagger back again. And then I lie in bed for another hour and uh, sip my drink. Yeah, so I feel like I've got the flu all the time. I just have to take things extremely slowly. Are you good at it's something I've not yet mastered by any means? In fact, just when I think I'm getting good, I, I make a fundamental error. Are you good at being strict on yourself to make sure that you're able to enjoy those better moments? Uh, Not very, but I'm getting better. (laughs) I suppose what I could do is describe the the key symptoms that stop me being able to do things. The key one, which all people with ME know, is the thing called post-exertional malaise, Mm -hmm. which for me means that if I do just a little bit of activity, and particularly physical activity, like walking um, from one room to another, things like that, or just standing for a while, if I do too much of that in, in a day or a couple of days, then I will crash and I won't be able to get out of bed at all for a few days. Or if I do, it'll be sort of just staggering to the bathroom and I'll feel a lot sicker. So it's been like that. For, well, I've had enemy for 28 years 
But for the first half of that time, I was what's called mild, which means that it didn't feel mild at the time. It felt horrible. (laughs) I felt ill all the time. But I was actually able to struggle on and keep going with working part-time as a teacher and bringing up my kids. Um, But that meant every day I would wake up feeling awful. I would make myself get up. I would do all the things I had to do and I would crash into bed in the evening feeling so in so much pain and so nauseous and so sick that I thought I'd never want to get up again. And most days I did manage to fall out of bed again the next day, but it really was a struggle. And I kept pushing myself over my limit and having to take time off work. After over a decade of doing that, I really had wrecked my system and had to give up work. And now I'm housebound, mostly bedbound. And uh, the thing that's helped me most recently, which I just wish I'd known about earlier, is um, wearing a Fitbit, a a step and heart rate monitor. Okay. And that helps me with pacing. Just Um, just explain a little bit more, because I associate Fitbits with people who are going for their jog or trying to get (laughs) to their 10,000 steps in a day, which I cannot even imagine being able to do right now. How, How does a Fitbit help you? When I first got it, which was about a year or more ago, I discovered very quickly that some days I was doing perhaps 2,000 of my little steps, which sounds like a lot, but because I wear it on my wrist, it registers wrist movements as well. So they're not really steps, it's movements. So on the days when I'd done, when it had registered 2,000, I would crash the next day. Whereas if I kept it below 1,000 and kept it more even, uh, then I was less likely to send myself into crashes. And the heart rate bit, like a lot of people with ME, I have a resting heart rate, which as soon as I get up out of bed, it shoots up. And if I walk around for a minute or two, then it it goes way up. And uh, you can do a calculation that says what your limit should be before you, for an ME person, when you should stop and rest. And I discovered very quickly that I really need to stop and rest after about a minute or two of activity. And I had been pushing myself so that rather than going to the kitchen and making a drink and then going back to bed again, I would go to the kitchen, make a drink, get my breakfast organised, bring a bit of washing in and then go back to bed. (laughs) And that would be much to do all at once. Yes. So I had to cut it back and do one of those things at a time and rest for an hour or two in between, which is incredibly frustrating. It is frustrating, but... It's absolutely vital, as you say, because going over your limits is unfortunately a fool's errand. It Just is, yeah. looking back over your 28, 28 years of this, I, I'm into year two, so 28 mm. years is just unfathomable to me. You, you said for that first decade or so, you classify yourself as mild, which is a horrible word because it sounds like everything's lovely and you and I know that's not true at all. But did, did something change or do you think it was cumulative that after a decade of trying to beat this, that your body just said stop? I think it was that. I think it was that I was doing it all wrong, basically. Okay. Um, back then, the only advice I had, I was, I was only ever diagnosed by a GP. I've never, in all the 28 years, been sent to any consultant of any sort. 
So I've only had GP input. And the GPs back then would say, if I got to the stage where I couldn't get back to work because I felt too awful, they would, they would sign me off work for a week and then I would be expected to go back to work. They never said rest. They always said, make sure you try to get enough exercise, um, which was crazy because I was, I was really fit when I started and it just suddenly, I, you know, I got an infection and I just suddenly couldn't do things anymore. The symptom that that I found really difficult then, which was quite really strange and I really didn't understand, was that I had been doing things like going for long hikes, going dancing, all the sort of lovely things you can do, and doing things with my kids, going to work. And suddenly, anything more than a sort of uh, 100 metres or so of walking, my legs would feel as though they were going to collapse. Yeah. Um, and they'd get very painful. And... Uh, so it was this sort of weird symptom that I just didn't understand. And the doctors certainly didn't understand. It was nothing to do with deconditioning. It was just my muscles wouldn't work after a while. It's a different feeling. I, I've experienced this where the best I can describe it to other people, uh, I say jelly legs. I don't think that covers it. But I think the description that's helped explain it to other people, I say it feels like the bones have been removed from inside my legs and, and the scaffolding isn't there to keep me upright. Yeah, it is very similar to that. I think I describe it more as my muscles giving up, but yeah. it's the same idea. And I discovered that the more activity I did, the more painful it would get. And it would be it wasn't just sort of an overall ache. It was the specific muscles I used would become more painful. The other thing you've mentioned in passing briefly in this conversation is, is children. Uh, yeah. But actually, your daughter, Hannah, is in a very similar situation to you. Yes, she is, sadly. Um, when she was 16, which is 20 years ago, she, again, very suddenly, she was doing a GCSE year at school and she had about half a term where she just probably needed a day or two off a week which she just didn't feel well. And then suddenly after the autumn half term, she just couldn't go back to school. She was just too unwell. And... Uh, very similar symptoms to mine. So I started suspecting, but I hoped it wasn't. But, uh, yeah, she just never went back to school. She just couldn't. She went straight from being fit and healthy to what's classed as moderate. So she could pot around the house. She could do a few handicrafts and hobbies. She could be taken out in a wheelchair. But she just couldn't do physical stuff anymore. And she also has a lot more of brain fog which is another big ME symptom so she couldn't concentrate on her studies over the years she tried to do some studying she did some very short open university modules but it was really heartbreaking to watch because I would see her sitting down with her books trying to study and after about half an hour her face would just glaze over she just couldn't take in anymore she couldn't couldn't concentrate she couldn't write anymore and so in the end, she had to give that up as well. And what's Hannah's situation now? As you say, this, this has been 20 years. What, what's, what's her experience at this time? She, like me, has been on the sort of downward path. Currently, she spends, I'd say, 95% of her time lying in bed, usually in a semi-darkened room. She puts on audiobooks and listens to those but she can't really manage much more than that. She tries to get up 
at meal times just to have a bit of company because it's just the two of us in the house. Um, but usually sort of halfway through a meal after about five minutes, she says, I'll, I'll take this, the rest of this back to bed with me. I can't sit up anymore. And it's heartbreaking to see this happening to somebody who should be, I'm going to start crying now, <laughs> somebody who should be living a, a healthy, fulfilled life has just never had a chance. And it, yeah, it's uh, heartbreaking to, to see. Trish, is it a blessing or a curse, do you think, that there are two of you experiencing the same thing in the same household at the same time? Because I, I could see it could go one of two ways. What What's your theory on that? I would say on balance, it's definitely a blessing because there's, there's always someone in the house, someone else in the house who understands and who knows, who doesn't doubt me. That's the, the, another big thing with Emmy, that people think, oh, she's just tired. Um, she's just lazy. She just, you know, she just likes being at home, lying around. She won't come to any of our events. The downside is that if either of us crashes, then it's hard for the other one to, to cope because we sort of prop each other, do little things for each other. So, for example, I suppose I should fill you in on how we deal with care as well. We don't have any family living nearby. My son is about 100 miles away and my ex-husband is about 60 miles away. And they both visit for a day or two occasionally and help out a bit, but they can't be on call. Otherwise, there's my, my own family are all in Australia because that's where I grew up and they're all out there. So I haven't got my brother and sister to call on. I have a few friends who visit, but basically I have to employ people to do all the practical stuff. So I employ cleaner once a week. A friend once a week who comes and does some cooking and housekeeping for us and does things like taking us to dentist appointments. And I employ carers to come three times a week to help me have a shower, wash my hair, those sorts of things. And we get all our shopping online delivered. And, yes, so when things are running fairly smoothly, we manage with that. We sort of each manage what we can of looking after ourselves and, and I tend to cobble together meals from stuff that, that we bought in ready-made or, or stuff the carers cooked. And use my microwave and my freezer and my friends, <laughs> um, which was a bit of a crisis recently because the freezer failed, so I had to get a new one. So we had a couple of weeks of living on baked beans and things. It's like student living, isn't it, Trish? Yeah. <laughs> do, do you two do anything nice are you, are you able to to enjoy the world in any sense i mean you, you talked about sort of handicrafts and small crafts and visits from friends but what are you able to do that can make you smile and feel good about this world in spite of everything well the strange thing is that neither of us actually suffers from depression and i would expect us to being in these circumstances but we don't sometimes we get a bit miserable but you expect that when you're feeling feeling horrible but um, we both find ways to fill our days. Hannah, as I say, at the moment can really only listen to audio books and chat to me for a few minutes. I mean, she, she amazes me that she's not gone into a huge depression, but she, I am just full of admiration for her. She's lovely. She, she manages to find something to do. She loves doing handicrafts, but she can do so little of that now. It's frustrating for her. So she might sit up in bed and do a bit of cross stick for five minutes and then need to lie down again. 
I can hear the pride in your voice as you talk about Hannah. What What, what is your hope for her? I mean, we, we all have oh, to remain hopeful it, about this illness. Feels really. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I worry about it. But um, anyway, uh, what do I do to keep myself entertained? I used to read a lot. I don't so much now because my concentration's going a bit. So I listen to audiobooks more. And I find an audiobook lasts a good long time because I have to keep going back and listening to a chapter again because I've forgotten what it said. So I listen to audiobooks. I watch a bit of telly, usually lying in bed, having it on my computer. But uh, not a lot. The, the real thing that's been a huge boon for me in the last couple of years, particularly in the last six months, is the patient forums because you have a chance to talk to people all around the world who are in the same position. I wish I'd known about them sooner. Um, the one that I'm involved with at the moment called Science for ME. I just love being on the forum and you know chatting to people on it. And I've got my computer set up so I can lie in bed with my arms well supported and just type. And luckily I can touch type. So I, I'm forever um, rabbiting on on the forum about this and that. It's quite incredible. I... I bumped into you, so to speak, in a virtual sense on the Science for ME forum. And it, it's been a huge help to me, I think partly to think, I'm not alone. I'm not going yeah. mad. This is yeah. happening to other people. And, and also, I, I found a sense of hope knowing there are people out there who are working to find the breakthrough this with this thing. Yeah. I'm guessing you, you must have had similar feelings. I do, and I, I, as I say, I wish I wish I'd known about it sooner because it felt so isolated for so long. I mean, I was, I've been a member of the ME Association for a long time, but that's that's different. You get their quarterly magazine, and you know you get little bits online about research and things, but you don't get the interaction. And the forum has been brilliant for that. So much so that I've gone and got myself involved in being on the committee and all sorts of things, which. It's very fulfilling because it's the first time I've actually had colleagues and felt like I actually had a role in the world for 15 years since I gave up work. And that's important, isn't it? It is, yes. I sort of feel that I exist again. (laughs) I'm not just stuck in a house, not known by anybody. You sound an optimistic person. I I can hear a smile in your voice at times. How how do you maintain that outlook? I suppose partly because I have been incredibly lucky that I didn't get sick until I was 40. So I'd already had a marriage, even though that fell apart. And I'd had two lovely children, and I think they're absolutely wonderful. And uh, I feel very blessed in that sense. And I also had a career, which I loved, as a maths teacher. I think it was devastating having to give it up at the age of 54. Mm-hmm. But at least I managed to do it for, for that long. Um I've still got a few friends who I see occasionally. So, yeah, I I do feel very blessed. And then every now and again, it all crashes in on me. And I just think, am I going to cope with another day of this? Um, It's all too much. And I go into a bit of a a self-pity sort of miseries. And uh, I, I think it's so much harder for people who haven't had the opportunities I've had. You know, that's that's their whole life is having ME like Hannah and that's just so much harder yeah and and I love learning about all the research that's going on and talking to people about that because being a sciencey mathsy sort of person I like learning about 
about stuff. I did wonder that, actually. I, I find it bewildering just to to try and keep on top of what's out there, the, the information, sometimes the contradictory and competing information. I, I struggle with it, but, but I'm guessing that that suits you. It does, and that's where the forums helped a lot, because before that I would see odd bits of research. I mean, I remember when the PACE trial came out in 2011, I actually... You know, got a copy of it online and read it, and I thought, this is rubbish. <laughs> but I couldn't sort of put my finger on it exactly, except that I thought, I remember thinking at the time, well, the, the so-called improvements they're showing are so tiny, and it's all done on questionnaires. And, and I had a look at one of the questionnaires. It's about fatigue, and I thought, well, I, I mean, if I filled in that fatigue questionnaire back then when I was mild and I filled it in again now, I would get exactly the same score. Because it only asks you, do you have this particular fatigue symptom? It doesn't ask how bad it is. So the fact that my energy envelope, as they call it, has shrunk from, I probably used to be able to walk sort of one to 200 metres before I felt like, like I was going to collapse back then. And now it's sort of five metres wobbling along, holding onto the walls. But that would come out the same score on that questionnaire. I think this is bonkers. If there's somebody listening to this podcast right now who perhaps is is new to ME in terms of their own experience or awareness of it, or, or somebody who is in the moderate to severe category, and again, I hate this categorization because it's a sliding mm. scale, but there we are. Is, is there any particular nugget of advice that you wish you'd known back then that you now know that you could share with somebody else? Yes, that. I think the basic piece of advice is don't listen to the people who tell you to exercise, listen to your body. And if it says stop, then stop. And I would very much suggest rather than doing what some of the ME clinics seem to do, which is getting you to fill in endless pages of trying to break down your activity hour by hour and so on and analyse it. And I found that completely useless, but some people find it helps. That's fine. But I, I would definitely recommend the, step and heart rate monitoring um, using something like a Fitbit because it, it means that you can get some real feedback on pacing that actually makes sense and keep a diary of your symptoms as well. Just I mean, you don't need to write everything down, but sort of I, I'm started doing that now as well. And I just do it on a scoring system. So I, I rate my energy level each day and how much I can do it's on a simple one to 10 score and make a record of my steps and sort of how much I've gone over my heart rate and things. And then I can look at the pattern and see, like I did in the early days with it, that I needed to cut back from 2,000 to 1,000 steps. So instead of crashing into post-exertional malaise, perhaps every couple of weeks, I now only perhaps crash every couple of months, which is a lot better. So my energy envelope hasn't increased, but at least I'm not I'm not lying in bed feeling I can't move nearly as often. It's not about working harder, it's about working smarter, it seems to me. It is, yes. Listen, Trish, I, I hope that this chat today hasn't unduly used up your limited energy. I'm just incredibly grateful for your experience and your insights and and wish you and, and Hannah all the very best. I, I hope Hannah isn't too shocked when she eventually listens to this podcast. <laughs> well, she did give me her permission to say whatever I liked about her, and I don't think I've said anything bad. <laughs> hey, there's still time if you want to do it now, Trish. <laughs> <laughs>
Listen, thank you so much for joining me on the ME show today. Really appreciate your time and wish you all the very best. You're very welcome. What an insight. Thanks again, Trish. I know she was nervous about how she'd come across in the interview, but I suspect you, like me, are immensely thankful for her sharing her story. And Trish and Hannah, I hope you're pleased with this episode in the knowledge that you will be helping so many other people. If you want to share your thoughts and feedback, you'll find me on Twitter at Gary Burgess CI. Please use the hashtag TheMEShow. If you're listening to this on iTunes, please rate and review us there to boost our rankings in the hope that even more people find us. And you'll find the show notes that accompany this episode, as well as all the others in this series, at meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. That's meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. And that's the very best link to share with friends, with family, strangers, even your local MP, if you like, to help spread the word about the ME show. Next time, I speak to a community nurse who runs an ME support service in the southwest of England, which is arguably among the best in the British Isles when it comes to supporting people with this illness. I hope you'll join me for that. I'm Gary Burgess. This is The ME Show. Thank you for listening.